0: Hello and welcome to From the Void Up, World Building with Science and Sociology, a world building guide for anyone who cares too much about the minutiae. Today is minutia, the global climate cells and global circulation in the atmosphere. I am your host, Tyler Hadar, and if we are all ready to go, let's get building. Last week, we talked about the oceans and how they move energy around. But it's not the only way for energy from the sun to get distributed. We also have the atmosphere. Energy distribution works best with fluids, you might have noticed. Rocks do a good job moving energy in and out as they heat and cool, but they can't exactly move that energy all around the world since they are, for the most part, stuck. A hot rock from the top of a mountain falling down to a very cold valley really won't reheat the place. I mean, sure we have geothermal energy, but that's not really interacting with the sun energy that we're talking about. Fluids on the other hand can move, and often move as a direct result of changing temperatures. Gases and liquids therefore are the two major contributors to making life on a planet possible. Which brings us to the atmosphere. It is incredibly important for all life on earth, which should be unsurprising since we do breathe it, you know, like all the time. The types of gases that make up our atmosphere makes it possible for us to survive. There's a good 78% nitrogen, which is important because plants need nitrogen to grow, even if they can't actually get it out of the air. But that is for an episode about farming If you don't want me to talk about nitrogen fixation for about 10 minutes, then you're going to have to riot. I'm sorry. Then in the atmosphere, we also have only 20.9% oxygen. And we really should not have any more because it's actually like a drug if you overdose on your oxygen. I think it's hallucinogenic even. And the remaining 1.1% is a mix of argon, carbon, and generally other really minor gases. Now, are the specific percentages of each element in the atmosphere that important? You know, probably. I just don't know how important that is in different regards. In biochemistry, it probably isn't terribly important to the living creatures and for the dynamics. I'm not entirely sure how different chemical compositions would interact with the different temperature distributions. Maybe one day I will take classes on this and I can do an episode. But for now, it probably just stick near Earth, I guess. Uh, But maybe we can go over that in a later episode, who knows, because I sure don't. What we are really going to be talking about today is the impact of the global atmosphere on regional climates. Because these past few episodes have entirely just been leading up to next week's episode, which is about biomes. But for now, we need to discuss the last step in determining different climates. We are going to discuss the layers of the atmosphere very briefly, and then we are going back to our good old friends, uneven heating of the Earth's surface, convection currents, and the Coriolis effect. Because the physics of how the Earth's atmosphere moves is not dissimilar from the oceans, it's just now we have to talk about it in air context rather than water. So, briefly, the layers. There are four layers of the atmosphere, and each layer has different characteristics and roles in the overall bubble. Closest to the Earth's surface is the troposphere. It extends up about 10 kilometers, and this is where all major weather patterns occur. It gets progressively colder as you go up, because a lot of the energy here is energy that was absorbed from sunlight into the rocks, and then it radiates back up. There's a a decent amount of heat coming out of the Earth itself which is why it gets colder the further away from the Earth you get. Above this is the stratosphere, which goes up from about 10 kilometers to 50 kilometers. Inside this layer is the ozone layer, which absorbs the majority of incoming ultraviolet light, which would otherwise kill everything on the planet. It actually gets warmer and warmer as you move up, because of how the energy is getting into this layer. It's not radiating that high off the earth anymore, so it's all coming down from the sun. As the ultraviolet light gets absorbed into the ozone layer, it has this reaction that produces heat, meaning the upper parts of the layer, which has the most ultraviolet light entering it, is warmer because of all those reactions, and with less ultraviolet light, Coming through as it's getting absorbed at different layers, less and less ultraviolet light's available for these reactions, though you get, so it produces less heat as you travel down. Above the stratosphere is the mesosphere. Not to be confused with the mesosphere inside the planet, but once again, this mesosphere is kind of just there. This layer of the atmosphere is where the air starts to properly thicken from 50 to 85 kilometers. This increase in air pressure means that anything coming through starts to actually feel the effects of air resistance, unlike every physics problem ever. So as a result, this is where the meteors are going to start to burn up because they're actually interacting with the friction of an actual atmosphere for once. And like the troposphere, actually, it gets colder as you go up because you are getting to thinner and thinner sections of atmosphere, so you have less stuff running into you to cause that temperature. We do kind of have one more layer, kind of, and it's the thermosphere. This is essentially the last few puffs of air before you hit space proper, starting around 85 kilometers and ending somewhere around 100, which is where space begins. Which actually, if you think about it, is not that far up. It's only about 62 miles, 100 or so kilometers. It's an hour of highway speed driving, if that. And yet, that is where space apparently starts. Interestingly enough, particles up here are still moving about as gas particles tend to do. But because the temperatures are massively dependent on solar energy, sometimes during the day when they have all of that solar light hitting them, they can get so hyper and move so quickly that they exceed escape velocity. And these tiny little particles of air just blip off into space. Which is why Mars wouldn't actually be able to maintain a stable atmosphere for a comparably long amount of time, in comparison to Earth. Its gravity is smaller than ours, because it's a smaller mass planet, meaning escape velocity is easier to achieve, so the top layers of its atmosphere just boiled away until there was nothing left, which means eventually I have to do an episode about planet size, don't I? The majority of what characters will be interacting with, however, will be just the troposphere, even if they can fly or have like a pegasus or something. Dragons really are, I consider, max height flyers, and they would probably be just going at airline heights anyway, which is just between the troposphere and the stratosphere. So maximum maximum living creature flying height would be 30,000 feet. And even up there, you would need respirators and magic to keep warm because the air is too thin to breathe and it's freezing cold. The average person can survive only up to about 14,000 feet. So, do not let your Pegasus flying paladins go above 14,000 feet unless they have explicitly planned magical support, even if they're chasing dragons. Alright? Not to turn this episode into just the projected pain of a dm with a flying party member, we're going to talk about wind because honestly it's easier to talk about this stuff than it is how to balance encounters when you've got flying players. Uh, We're moving on to wind, it is easier. (laughs) Okay, uneven heating of the earth's surface, my favorite. This is a good old 8th grade meme, and it is back at it again with the uneven heating of the earth's surface, as my friend and I said every single day in 8th grade. My earth science teacher would essentially tie everything in the meteorology unit back to this, and for good reason. Uneven heating of the earth's surface causes just about everything in weather and the atmosphere. Our world is a sphere. And it is tilted on an axis, which means depending on where the Earth is around the Sun, different regions are at different angles with the Sun. So let's say in July, the Northern Hemisphere is pointed towards the Sun. It's angled towards the center of our solar system. But if it's in January, the Southern Hemisphere is actually pointed closer. So in July, Northern Hemisphere gets summer. In January, Southern Hemisphere gets summer. So if you took an orange and kind of held it at an angle and pointed a flashlight directly at it, the part closer to the flashlight is getting hit dead on with the beams. But towards the top, the light has to move farther before hitting the peel, and when it does it hits at a lower angle. The light gets then distributed across a larger surface area, but it has the same amount of energy as smaller sections where the light is hitting pretty directly. The light moves in a straight line for this large-scale imagery, but if the surface it hits isn't directly perpendicular, it's going to make different angles. Those angles on Earth means it has to go through more atmosphere, so it's already getting a lot of energy absorbed out of it as it has to move through this matter, and then when it does hit, it's got less energy, and it's less energy per square foot because it's expected to cover so much more surface area. The net result is whichever part is angled away gets less warmth than what is angled towards, which is what actually gives us the seasons, not the planet's overall proximity to the sun or anything. Which is why the different hemispheres have inverted seasons like I kind of mentioned. This also means that regions farther north and south have much more extreme seasons than towards the equator, which is always vaguely pointed at the sun anyway. In fact, it's the winters of no sun whatsoever in the poles that leads to the ice caps, which then in the summers, when they're getting constant sunlight, they melt down and then they refreeze in the next winter. Nowadays, they melt more than they can refreeze, which is an issue, those glaciers are starting to fade away, and we do talk a little bit about that in today's interview, but like a just a wee tad. The main thing that uneven heating, though, causes is pressure differences. Pressure is essentially... This is a really bad definition, there's definitely better definitions, but it's a decent explanation. It's kind of like, how much of this air or how much of this fluid are you squeezing into a space smaller than it would like to get? So, kind of like a balloon. You fill up a balloon with lots of air, and all of the air inside is now restricted to a relatively smaller amount of space than it would be taking up if it was, per se, just floating around your house so the air inside the balloon is under immense amounts of pressure and it wants to move away from all of the other air wants to spread out but as it tries to spread out all it can find are the rubber walls of the balloon so it pushes those out until it's approximately around shape the rubber walls essentially stop air trying to escape but it replicates the general shape of what the air is trying to do as it's trying to move away from the center of this enclosed space. So it's super high pressure inside. And when you let go of the balloon and you kind of let you untie it or you release the little hole in it, all of the air inside that fluid in the high pressure zone really wants to rush out to lower pressure zones in the atmosphere around it any fluid in high pressure zones wants to flow into a low pressure zone until it reaches an equilibrium, or basically when there is no difference in pressure anywhere, it's all just kind of consistent. This basic concept is the grounding force of the most common thing that you see on earth, wind. If, if you have ever gone outside, you have felt wind. If you have at least even seen a breeze pull a bit of dirt or leaves around on a TV show once if you've never gone out, then that's wind. You've, you've seen wind at least. The particles of air, all those little oxygens and nitrogens bouncing around, bounce into other things. And if they're moving fast and hard enough, you can feel them or actually see them move what they're running into around. Wind blows because of how heat impacts air pressure. Let's imagine like a parking lot next to a lake. The parking lot absorbs so much solar energy, which it transforms directly into heat radiating up into the air. So like the sun hits it, it says that's a lot of sunlight, I am a piece of asphalt rock, I will absorb all of that energy immediately and it will turn directly into heat. So the air above it gets so much hotter because it's all of a sudden getting all of this heat released up into it. And the air that gets hot becomes less dense, so it rises. And it's kind of leaving this huge bubble of very low-pressure air behind it because there's now so much space in between the particles, not only because it's getting warmer, but because the majority of the particles are now moving up. They're actually leaving behind. If you were able to pause it partway through, it would be like it was leaving behind a whole section of nothing behind it. Of course, that's not what happens, it doesn't stay empty and a void, you don't create like a vacuum by elevating some air a little bit, because there's colder air around it, and if there are colder pockets of denser air, it will then move. Because that dense air is under high pressure and it's like, oh look, there's a low pressure zone right there, let's all go move to that spot. So essentially, as the air is actively rising, it would be leaving behind this vacuum instead All of the high pressure around it moves into this low pressure zone and it's the movement of air going from high pressure to low pressure that causes wind. And it also kind of fuels these tiny little convection cycles, which are essentially little circles of air moving to a spot where it warms up and it rises, and as it rises, more cold air comes down and fills the space, and it's kind of like a little circle, which I discussed in much more depth last episode. In comparison to a hot parking lot where there is so much heat getting released up into the air above, a lake nearby would not heat the air above it so much because of its specific heat. Again, I talked about this a little bit more last episode, but you know, gotta review. Solar energy does get absorbed into water just the same way it gets absorbed into asphalt. The difference is it takes so much more energy to get the water to react or heat up. So the air above it doesn't get very hot because all of that energy isn't actually getting turned into heat as quickly as it would if it were in asphalt. So that means the air above it doesn't have much heat below it to warm it up. This entire little air front on top of the lake remains at a decently high-pressure zone relative to the air around it. Which means when the parking lot next to it has all of this air rising up and out of the way, it's the air over the lake that can then rush into that void. So this is essentially what is causing the winds that you feel. It's just floods of air moving from an area of high pressure to low pressure and it moves so fast that we can actually feel it. This changing in pressure, however, happens on a much broader and much more important scale. And this episode is, in fact, about the global atmosphere. So as nice as it is to discuss a cool ocean breeze at midday, We are preparing for next week's episode. We need to discuss climate cells, which I love. The climate cells are three massive convection currents that kind of, if you look at charts of them, they look like toilet paper roll wigs around the planet. Technically, there are six convection cycles, but there are three types actually that just get reflected across the equator. So we only talk about those three being the Hadley cell, the Ferrell cell, and the Polar cell. We measure where these currents see their rise and fall along latitude lines, so it should all come out symmetrically across the equator. The Hadley cell is the most clearly delineated, so let's start with that one. Since it's all one giant convection current, you might assume that at some point, the air has to get hot and rises, leaving air on the ground cycling back down. And then at another point, it is cooling and sinking. And you would be completely correct. That is exactly what this is. The Hadley cell sees air rising out, essentially along the equator. There's actually a tropical meridian line that shifts depending on the season, but for the most part, it's in the tropics And quite frequently, pretty close to the equator. This entire tropic region receives a massive amount of solar energy because it's getting hit pretty much 90 degrees or close to 90 degree angle. And it also is just like so much intense energy in the smaller space. So that makes it a lot hotter. Even though a lot of it's water, it's getting a lot more intense energy from the sun. So it's going to be heating up more relative to the areas around it. This means that the air here is going to be the warmest air and the least dense air on the planet, essentially, which of course means it's going to rise. And when warm air rises, you actually get a lot of important evaporation processes because the warmer water is, the less additional energy it takes to evaporate some off the top because it's already so close to splitting apart. And then as the air rises in the Hadley cell in this around the equator region, it's carrying all of that water vapor that's getting formed from this region just being so warm. It's carrying that even up further into the atmosphere. And then as it gets carried higher up, the temperatures go down and water vapor starts to form. And cool until it's at the top of the little uplift zone where it turns into clouds and then lots and lots of rain. So the equators you see an immense amount of rain and that's incredibly important for next week's episode. As the air rises it starts to move poleward in these upper sections while along the surface down by the waters in the planet it's moving towards the equator. And that causes a lot of large-scale surface winds that are moving towards the equator and are getting pulled by the Coriolis effect. I have a much more in-depth explanation of the Coriolis effect in the ocean episode, but to review, Basically, sections of the Earth are traveling at different speeds because of the shape being a circle, which means any fluid traveling from a section of the Earth that's essentially traveling faster means that that fluid is going to get deflected. It's going to move east to west relative to its movement north and south, depending on where it's going. In the Northern Hemisphere, the Hadley cell's southern moving air means that the air currents are getting deflected to the west because it's going from a section where the Earth is traveling slower to somewhere where it's traveling faster. In the Southern Hemisphere, the Hadley cell is reflected so it's moving north, but it's also getting deflected west because it's also going from a slower to faster section. This means that the slow-to-fast-moving air patterns can't keep up, essentially, with the rotation of the Earth anymore, so it falls behind, westward away from how the Earth rotates. So you get air currents traveling towards the equator go west, and away from the equator go east, generally. And that can make uh, huge circles, clockwise in the Northern Hemisphere, and counterclockwise in the Southern Hemisphere. These winds caused by the cells are called prevailing winds because they're the the strong ones that are going to exist no matter how smaller air fronts work. Prevailing winds carry the large storms, fronts, and are really important for sailing because those are the winds that you're going to be getting on a day-to-day basis. If the winds move consistently in one direction, it'll be easier to sail with those air currents. This is actually specifically how the prevailing winds in the Hadley cell get their name. These are called the Trade Winds because they're stretching from West Africa to the West Indies. They carried hundreds of ships across the Atlantic in the Triangular Trade and during the Age of Exploration. These you might guess also carry hurricanes to America's eastern coast, but we don't call them the Hurricane Winds. They are the trade winds. It's a very Eurocentric name, come to think of it, but that's what they're called. This is all at the surface level of the cell, of course. Up high, the currents are actually moving away from the equator as they're getting pushed up by more air rising in the tropics. By the time this air reaches about 30 degrees towards the poles, north or south, it's cooled down enough just from being in this colder section of the atmosphere that it starts to sink. This means that there is a band of very high pressure, because now, instead of it being constantly rising air, it's constantly sinking air. The temperature overrides the need for equilibrium in this particular instance. High pressure zones mean that there is going to be very little moisture getting to rise up, so there's not going to be any water vapor getting high enough to turn into clouds and rain. In addition to this, for the Hadley cell, it's rained out whatever liquid it did have by the time that air gets to the 30-degree line. So this means that the 30-degree line is almost entirely full of deserts. If you look at it on Google Maps or something, 30-degree line is the Sahara Desert, the drier climes of the United States and northern Mexico, as well as the Middle East. So this region really isn't getting much rain. There is no uplift in the atmosphere for any water vapor that can happen to get high enough to turn into rain, and it also just is the driest air in this convection cycle, because it already rained earlier in when it was that high up, You really just don't get rain along the 30-degree line, which is why it's essentially a desert band. And yes, Florida is technically around the 30-degree line, but Florida also is on the line of the ocean gyres. And the ocean gyres kind of supplement the rainfall in this region by bringing stuff along the water as opposed to the global cell. This is just the Hadley cell, of course. It does contain the largest surface area of the three cells and it has the most distinctive features of rainforests and deserts clearly falling along latitude lines. However, the feral and polar cells impact quite a bit in their regions and can make weather predictions more interesting, we'll say. The feral cells go from about 30 to 60 degrees and the poles go from 60 degrees north to south to 90. 90 degrees is actually the poles themselves. So that's why it's called the polar cell. Where the Hadley cell has surface currents moving towards the equator and cooling air going polewards at higher altitudes, the feral cell has its surface air currents moving poleward and the high altitude air is moving back towards the equator. As the air from the Hadley cell is coming down at the 30 degree latitude, it's like pouring water onto a plate. The water's going to go kind of in both directions. So the air itself is going to move down along the surface back towards the equator, but some of it's also going to start getting pushed northward because it's just kind of spreading out over the surface. These northern moving, actually warmer air currents are also getting pulled by low pressure zones at the 60 degrees. So it's kind of got somewhere to move towards and tons of air dumping down on that spot that's kind of just spreading out like dumping water. It's not dissimilar from plate tectonics along the 60 degree line because along the 60 degree line is essentially like a, a front of less dense, warmer air hitting much more dense, colder air, and like plate tectonics, the less dense one is going to rise over, which means that there's going to be a decent amount of uplift along the 60-degree line, which means, again, that's going to lead to lower pressure zones, allowing for more precipitation to form. It's the interplay between these two fronts that tends to cause the variation in weather, and you can then look into like climatographs of different regions along this band and see like which time periods, which front is gonna be more predominant. Are you gonna get the high pressure cold air front? Or are you gonna be getting the low pressure warm air front? Since this is all still being affected by the Coriolis effect, the feral cell has prevailing winds of its own. Again, this is different from the Hadley cells because it's moving in the different direction. It's moving poleward rather than towards the equator. So in the feral cell, the winds moving poleward are going from a faster to slower section of the Earth, meaning it actually ends up ahead of the ground. It deflects to the east because it's moving with the rotation of the Earth faster than this section that it's moving towards. So these west to east prevailing winds are called the westerlies because they are coming from the west. High-altitude currents in the feral cell travel back south and then sink at the 30 degree line with the Hadley cell. Which means that's even more stuff causing high pressure along the 30 degree line, which is why there are just so many deserts around that latitude. Weather patterns in the feral cell tend to be a little more difficult to predict because there are much more diversified fronts because it's where the polar cell and the feral cell interact. It tends to be decently rainy and have comfortable temperatures. We'll be going into these and how they determine biomes more in the next episode, but for now just understand that the feral cell is the most diversified weather cell. It doesn't have a clear direct impact on the types of biomes and over the climate of a region in the same way that the Hadley cell does. Then there is the polar cell. The polar cell is, um, how do I say it? The polar cell is cold, so pretty much all of it is dense, like all of the time. Surface currents travel away from the poles, so you get prevailing winds going from the east to west, so you have the polar easterlies. And then when the cold air hits the edge of the ferrule cell, where those two interact, it gets warmer and therefore rises, kind of, slowly, very slowly, which is also another reason why you get uplift around the 60 degree line, and is slowly brought back poleward until it cools and sinks back down. The amount of air sinking at the poles themselves mean that there's very little moisture here, almost even less than 30 degrees when it comes to water because whatever rain it does get, it isn't rain, it's all snow and you can't exactly drink snow. So the polar caps are actually considered cold deserts themselves, which we'll be getting into more next episode. These cells cycle the energy up and around their latitudes, but also help spread the warmth from one to another where they overlap. Moving heat poleward in the feral cell and letting cold air out of the polar cells helped each climate diversify its temperature slightly and generally establishes how weather patterns interact. For example, rain. I've mentioned this before at least a few times at this rate, but warmer water evaporates more easily than cold water. You see, of the liquids, this one has a very fancy and very strong case of adhesion, where it sticks to itself. There are tiny little bonds between each H2O molecule that lets water stick to itself, which is how you get stuff like a slightly overfilled cup of water with a thin sort of like bubble above where the lip is. This also means that it takes more energy to get the molecules to bounce apart since they literally stick together. More heat is then required. So the warmer the water already is, the less added energy it takes to get those particles to fully break away from the rest and head up into the atmosphere. Because of this, warmer regions get more rain, like the tropics. But once the warm water molecules get higher and higher into the atmosphere, they cool down. Depending on air temperature and the time of day, and a bunch of other smaller factors, all of this water vapor starts to condense and turn into raindrops forming around tiny little dust particles in the air. But primarily, the main cause of storms and precipitation is lift, which becomes important around mountains. Another shout out to next episode. Next episode's gonna be fun, guys. The air temperature and sunlight can kind of change the temperature of the air around the water vapor, but altitude is what makes the biggest difference. Remember, the troposphere gets colder as you move up. Water cools and condenses as it rises before turning into clouds and falling, which means you need two factors to get rainfall, a water source somewhere upwind of the region, and a source of a lift to get that water cooled down and falling. So let's go back to the tropics to discuss this, and the Hadley cell. There's lots of water rising in the tropics because it's so hot over there, and the water is warm enough to just rise up so easily. And from there, this is the section of the cell that's rising, actively. All of that water vapor is immediately getting carted straight up into the atmosphere, where it can condense and turn into rain that then travels along the trade winds and falls around the tropics. Now. Are there any weather patterns that we can think of, that we see consistently, in the tropics, of storms moving from the east to west along trade winds? Hmm... Oh, do you mean like, hurricanes? Or typhoons? Or cyclones? Or, or what do they call them in Australia, like wind willies or something? Yeah. Storms traveling along bands of warm water caught up by the Coriolis effect that to get deflected away from the equator into a neighboring landmasses tend to be rather large and rainy and common. As they move, they consistently absorb more energy out of the oceans from the warmth of the water, and the moisture mixes into the air more easily. So this is where you get the biggest storms. A lot of this is dependent on the oceans, which I do go over in the ocean episode itself, but going over that information through the lens of climate cells will certainly help determine the scale and scope of your weather patterns, which I will be getting into a lot more next week with biomes and eventually, apparently, I have to do a meteorology episodes, so I'm going to be studying meteorology for you guys. As long as your base fluid physics remain the same from your world to ours, chances are that the winds in general are going to remain the same. And as long as your planet is round, you're going to have uneven heating of your world's surface, which will cause these pressure changes at a global level, not just small local events. And as long as your planet's mass is big enough, the atmosphere won't run away. The implications of these climate cells for your setting are literally big enough for their own episode, which is why we're getting one next week like I've said like 5 billion times already. The climates that you get in different regions lead to specific types of plants and animals surviving better from one place to another until they establish some extremely unique locations which we're going to be discussing in detail. But for now, let's get back to the concept of storms, because last week's interview we talked a little bit about how sounds and coastlines interact with storms and storm surges. Today, we are talking with somebody who studies exactly this, storms and their interactions with coastlines in a much broader and human infrastructure kind of sense. All right, thank you so much for joining me on From the Void Up. If you could do me a quick favor and introduce who you are and who it is you work for.
1: Um, My name is Lee Herdman and I work for the United States Geological Survey. My official job title is hydrologist, but what I mostly do is do numerical models of flooding, basically, generally coastal flooding, although some river flooding as well.
0: Could you explain a bit about what hydrology is for those who don't know?
1: Sure, Although I have to say I'm a hydrologist in name only and that there's like a limited number of job titles, you can get so I'm my degrees are actually all in civil and environmental engineering but hydrology is basically the study of water on and through the land surface so you know understanding how rainfall patterns are and then how that water flows over the land surface and into the soil and interacts with vegetation and um, things like that. I mean, yeah, at its core, hydrology is the study of hydro, right, which is water. So it's understanding how water moves around. I might describe myself more accurately as um, a hydrodynamicist. That's not actually a thing, but what I really um, am an expert in is studying, is understanding the physical forces on water. So understanding Uh, the dynamics of water movement and um so both in the coast and on the land surface um understanding you know how conservation of momentum wave dynamics things like that um end up moving water around
0: that sounds interesting like tracking where the water is going to go so you can start to make predictions then i imagine yes
1: yes we do lots of um predictions looking at sort of long time horizons of um, what sea level rise will mean for the shoreline evolution. Yeah, one of the important things about um, understanding the coastline is that you have to understand the water movement because the water ultimately ends up moving the land around and changing the shapes of our beaches and cliffs and Uh, wetlands and how those are able to evolve also so we have to kind of incorporate the the physics of the water movement to understand the physics of the of how the shore is changing also which is a big um, important thing especially if you own a two million dollar beach house
0: so (laughs) definitely so I understand you've done a lot of research about storm impact on coastlines, particularly in California or just like generally on the West Coast. Could you tell me a little bit about what it is about these larger storms that causes the flooding mm-hmm. which makes these sorts of impacts?
1: Um, yeah, so well, it depends on where you are, what kinds of storms will cause the biggest flood events. So on the West Coast, we don't um, typically have a lot of hurricanes, although there are some studies that show we will start to get hurricanes off of California and like that could hit LA under climate change but currently we don't typically have hurricanes right so hurricanes can drive a lot of storm surge due to the low pressure um, of the system and also the strong winds can kind of push the water and um, blow and pile up water near shore so that's a mechanism that drives storm surge throughout a lot of the United States on the Atlantic and Gulf Coast. But on the Pacific Coast, we um, tend to not have really high storm surges from pressure and wind fields so much as we do from really large wave events. So when you have um, big storms um, in the North Pacific, there's a lot of kind of storms that will develop um, in the center of the Pacific and Um, Those storms themselves don't actually hit land, but necessarily, at least not in their strongest form, but they will generate really large waves. And those waves can be um, many meters, like six, seven meters tall and relatively long period. And when those waves hit shore, they can elevate the water level through wave setup kind of by, I guess in a similar way to winds, the waves coming kind of end up piling up some water on shore. And then the waves themselves also run up onto the shore and have a lot of energy and can erode the shoreline and also contribute to a higher total water level. And so um, the, the flooding and storm damage mechanism tends to be more related to wave driven activity on the west coast.
0: And then east coast, do you get more storm surges because you have spiral storms with the low pressure zones causing them? Yeah,
1: yeah, you get more hurricanes. And um, I mean, yeah, well, and also northeasters too, um, which can cause storm surge. But so the other thing is that um, you have a much, so storms also cause a bigger storm surge in the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast because there's a much wider um, continental shelf. So you have a much, it's very shallow, like it's shallow for further out because of that, the storm is able to kind of pile up more water along the coast when you have a similar storm when it doesn't have quite the same impact because we have a much narrower continental shelf on the west coast.
0: So it's almost like the storm brings a whole bubble of extra water with it for the storm surges?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it brings a whole bubble of extra water and I guess it, yeah, and it piles, it <laughs> creates a bigger pile on top of like a shallower environment than it might um, on and a deeper environment, so.
0: That's really cool, the whole concept that there's actually more physical water getting pulled into a region. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a little difficult to visualize, but I mean, it, it does make sense. The coastlines then, since we know what's hitting them, Coastlines are what's getting impacted. Are there ways to tell like which different types would suffer the worst in a storm event?
1: Well, yeah, there definitely is. I mean, so which coastline will suffer the worst? Well, it depends on what you determine what you mean by suffer. I mean, a big storm impact is going to, a storm of the same size is going to bring similar forces to bear on the coast, and it kind of depends on what it's hitting. So there are things like if you have vegetation, for example, along your shoreline, so you have a a wetland area, right, that has a lot of marsh grasses and things, the fact that those plants are there, those plants act to dissipate the energy more quickly than if you had I mean, and an extreme example, like if you had, if it came in the shoreline was just a parking lot, right? The parking lot is totally smooth. So there's very little friction on that surface. So the water can just slide right on by the parking lot and hit whatever the next thing is. So if you have, but if you have something like vegetation, then that is a very rough surface. And so the water is not going to go in as far. So as long as you're okay with, as long as you don't think it's suffering to have your plants get inundated during a storm, um, which for the most part, usually that would be fine. (laughs) Um, It may, you know, it may, if it's getting inundated really frequently, that can have some ecosystem impacts. But yeah, so something like a, a marsh, like a vegetative shoreline will prevent the water from going in as far um, so that would minimize your suffering. And then, the, I mean, the other thing too is like a, a dune shoreline where you have kind of a pile up of sand. It gives a surface that the wave energy can go into like eroding that surface without impacting the infrastructure behind it. But then you may lose those dunes in the storm and you either have to spend a lot of money bringing more sand back or you have then lost that protective feature. Although naturally, the sand will kind of return over time. We have, you know, like a a seasonal cycle on most beaches where you kind of will build up sand slowly over the low, low wave periods, and then it will get eroded in these sort of big storm events, and then it will build up again. So as long as you don't have storm events too frequently, um, and you have sufficient um, supply of sand and sediment to rebuild your beach, then you can be in a sustainable place. So the, basically, the point is that if you, you want to leave more space for nature to take its course before it hits um, the things that you care about. And so things like having big sandy dunes as barriers that can erode and then slowly reaccrete or having vegetation is good. We have a lot of Rocky kind of cliff shorelines around the U.S. and um, as long as your house isn't right on the top of the edge of the cliff, I mean a cliff. Basically, the cliffs are what form the beaches. Like every once in a while, you know, it, it before we like had built infrastructure right along the coast, the what was building the sandy beaches was that the cliffs would every once in a while, you know, have kind of a big failure event, and then that that rocky rubble from the cliff would slowly break up and form the sandy beach, right? Now the problem is, is that, like, in California, we have Highway 1 going all along the cliffs in sections. And so we have to protect the cliffs from getting eroded by the storms. And so we've cut off that supply of sediment to the beaches. So in a lot of places, there's actually no beach left. And... Because the cliffs can't supply the sediment to, the, to form the beach in these events. So yeah, I think <laughs> the safest shoreline is one that is not built up. Probably,
0: Yeah, makes sense. You're going to be safest if you are farther from where a storm is going to hit.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's true. And there, but there, yeah, and there are things that like just letting the natural processes will kind of um, protect you.
0: And then, of course, people really rarely ever let it be just natural resources. We have a habit of trying to build up an architecture, our own defenses. And since you're doing a lot more of the engineering sides of things, have you studied like um, structural sorts of defenses like dams and levees uh, to, uh, in an attempt to like block out water and how effective do those tend to actually be?
1: I have, I have a well I did one uh, study I participated in one study looking at shoreline protection measures within San Francisco Bay on sea level rise and basically what we found is that and I but I've, and I've seen numerous other studies is that they're locally very effective like you can protect your shoreline reasonably well. The problem is, is that when you put up a, a wall at your shoreline, you know, you don't exist in a vacuum. And what happens is that that water that hits your wall, that energy then gets redirected to elsewhere in the system. So in a closed system like a bay, it leads to flooding in other parts of the bay that are not protected. And um, I've definitely seen studies also like in the Great Lakes where similar things have happened that people have put big breakwater walls to protect their property. Um, and then it turns out the neighbor's property, the erosion rate like almost doubled next door, right? Because that just meant that that energy was going to a different location and so it caused damage elsewhere. So. They are effective, but you also, the other thing that you kind of lend yourself to is if you go that let's just build walls route, you open yourself up to a situation like you had in Hurricane Katrina, right? Where like every, like New Orleans was fully protected by levees, but levees are only going to build so high, they can't be built infinitely high. And once that infrastructure is broken in a certain location, then the water gets trapped behind the walls, right? So if they... Like in thinking about San Francisco Bay, you know, if the shoreline communities start, all start building up walls. So like one's, you know, let's say the, the richest community, the one that has Google and Facebook, right, in it, they have lots of money. They decide, okay, we're going to build a wall. Then they're going to end up forcing their upstream, you know, their their neighbors to put up a wall also because they're making it worse for their neighbors. So then you get this cascade effect like where everyone puts up a wall and then you basically are opening yourself up to Like if a big enough storm comes that then tops one of the walls, then the water gets trapped behind the walls. And then you have, you don't have flooding most of the time. But when you finally have, you know, that Hurricane Katrina or that big storm event that overtops the defenses that you've built, then it's even worse because then the water is all trapped behind and you haven't been doing the work to make your infrastructure resilient a better model for building up your infrastructure is to create spaces that can periodically inundate. In so you have like accommodation space. So maybe you um, have a lot of underground garages, for example, that could be allowed to fill up with water if there's a big event because people can drive their cars out. You know, put you know, it's an asset that's movable, and then the houses are lifted up. Um, Or you have playgrounds or open field spaces that are usually used for recreation, but that can be, you know, can be inundated because you only have a temporary loss of that recreation space during a big storm event. So walls are effective until they're not. And then when they're not, you actually are almost creating a worse problem for yourself, a much kind of the movement of like... um, the architectural resilience movement is moving more towards creating spaces that can be periodically flooded, um, so uses that that don't you know house kind of permanent assets that have like mobile assets in them, so that. Um, they can be flooded every once in a while and it won't cause major damage. And like putting, you know, putting houses up on stilts is like a great example of that, where a lot of beach houses on the East Coast um, are built up so that, you know, the water can come in occasionally and not and not destroy the infrastructure there. Although the problem is that a lot of times they're built on sand dunes, which are moving underneath them so you, you maybe still need to go a little bit farther inland but um but the idea of stilts is a good one in general
0: yeah that makes sense like you just want to make sure the water can move through without hitting anything major because you can't stop the water's movement really without something breaking something has to be there to absorb the energy yeah yeah
1: you need something to absorb the energy which in it yeah it you'll always Someday you will get a storm that overtops your defenses. Like I think in most engineering code requires you to design for a one in a hundred year storm event. So a, a storm that you think will happen once every hundred years, which isn't that often. And so like when you're building something, you maybe expect that infrastructure to last for like 50 years. So it probably won't see that storm event, but especially with the uncertainty of climate change, we don't actually totally know what a one in 100 year storm is anymore, right? Cause we don't know what the next hundred years look like. So it is difficult to plan for that. And the other thing is that if, you know, there's still a chance every year that a one in a hundred year storm event can happen. And so if it overtops your infrastructure, then you're going to have a lot of problems. Whereas if you just have space for that water to go, then it's not a problem, right? You can let the water come in a little bit and then, and it recedes. You, I mean, you may have some work to do, like removing some debris and things, but you haven't damaged anything major. I mean, like, and, and, There's been some of this happening, of course, in response to Hurricane Sandy, like a lot of, I think the new building code, some of the new building codes in New York require, for example, not to put the, a lot of times like the heating and electric, like all that kind of utility infrastructure for a building were in the basement. And now they're (laughs) saying, oh... We're not going to let. Uh, we're not going to put those things in the basement anymore because that's critical, right? We're going to put it up higher, even though, of course, higher up real estate is more expensive. It's worth it to have a building that, like, will function through and after a storm, right? So just kind of moving things up a little bit so that um, it can get wet. Yeah, and having things like parking garages on the bottom is like a good
0: idea. And that's a lot for very modern societies. Are there any more archaic methods that, like, if medieval societies were having to deal with it, since fantasy aesthetics are often a lot more archaic, what sorts of older methods would be pretty decent, do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think historically, like, if you look at um, more permanent native, like, society well in America like more permanent um indigenous person people like the people that were nomadic basically like they didn't set up their um their long time homes on like the on the fluvial plains or the places that regularly flooded right they definitely practiced accommodation space so they didn't you know they put they they were near like the, so it's hard because the coasts and the waterways right are have lots of great resources like they have. Well, rivers have water for one, which is, of course, important, but they have lots of like, it's access to seafood and and other, yeah, like mostly food. They have a lot of like seafood and fish and things like that. And you have rich sediment deposits along river. So it is where you can access a lot of great natural resources, but you don't want to put your home there because they will get periodically. Or if you do live in like a marshy area, putting your house up on stilts is really like still it's like raising everything having um basement floors that are not that is not where you sleep and not where you have your kitchen and things like that I mean I think that's kind of the the old school way of how things were done so yeah it was all about accommodation space don't live where the water comes very often
0: <laughs> yeah, unless, of course, you're living along the Nile, but you don't live there, you just keep your fields there. Yeah, no, but exactly.
1: That's that's exactly it. Like, they would maybe set up temporary shelters, right? Like, out in the fields if their house had to be farther away. So they would spend time there, but they wouldn't have permanent... <laughs> their permanent residences wouldn't be there. <laughs>
0: so. so then if... Then regions are accustomed to getting flooded, I'd imagine the environment is maybe a little bit more used to it or more resilient. Is there a massive difference between how storms impact regions that flood regularly versus regions that never really get hit like that? Like uh, when Hurricane Irene hit Vermont, that was a, a wild time. Is that a consistent sort of pattern? Like some regions could just get more used to it than others?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I still think you're going to have whenever, so when you have a big flood event, you're still going to have big movements of sediment, for example, around the river and it might change and shift the river path pretty drastically in, in like a purely natural environment where things are allowed to move naturally. So I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say that like, it's like used to it because if it, if you have a big event with a lot of energy it's gonna move stuff around so and it, if you're at the coast it's gonna move sediment and it's maybe gonna cause some cliff failures or you know it's yeah so it's gonna change things and I think that's I mean in general that's okay like nature can handle it because the the animals can move or you know and it, it uh it shifts, like it deposits a bunch of new nutrient-rich sediment in a place. So now new vegetation will grow there. And kind of it, it's what creates opportunities for the ecosystem to dynamically evolve. And I think the reason it's problematic is because we have built our homes and our wastewater treatment plants and, and all those things in these places that are then affected by that by nature's dynamics, basically. So I wouldn't, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, in a, in a natural system, these big storm events, like a storm event like Hurricane Irene would cause like a major disruption and would move a lot of stuff and um, would, you know, knock down a lot of trees and put a lot of carbon into the, <laughs> into the river and things. So it's not like it wouldn't have, if there were no people here and that happened, it's not like it would be a non-event. Um, it just other creatures are just maybe smarter about <laughs> moving around and t- taking advantage of the new opportunities and things. I guess I don't know, maybe speaking of expertise in terms of <laughs> ecosystems, I'm not sure totally what the ecosystem impacts would be, but I think it's about whether we can handle. I mean, most of the, what I think about is like how can we as humans and as a society handle this dynamic nature of of water, basically. And so in that, and that has a lot to do with where we put our infrastructure and how we interact with it.
0: That's really interesting, honestly, not gonna lie, I'm interested in environmental engineering for myself. So it's always fun to hear about what the job is like. So just to wrap up, are there any common misconceptions about your field that you want to take a moment to clear up? Well, I would I um, I would say that the biggest one of the biggest issues that we have in communicating with the
1: public is this notion of probabilistic events, and that we can say you know this event has a one in a hundred. It's likely to happen once in a hundred years, but that doesn't mean that it's. Not gonna happen next year, right? So, um, or that it has to happen, like that if it hasn't happened in a hundred years, that it will happen next year. So, I think um, we have a lot of issues, especially with a lot of our work revolves around sea level rise, and and we have, you know, those forecasts are very probabilistic. Unfortunately, it looks like we're tracking sort of the upper edge of the uncertainty curve in a lot of ways, especially with the way the glaciers are melting. So that's not good news that we have to follow sort of our worst case scenario understanding. But, um, you know, it is hard because people look and say, oh, well that hasn't happened in 20 years, so I don't need to worry about it. And, um, you know, it's just difficult because it still means it's pretty likely to happen. That, yeah, yeah, that certain events are likely to happen. And you do need to, plan for them on the time scale of the infrastructure that you're building. Cause a lot of times the things that we're building or the things that we're buying, like a, a good time horizon to think about is uh 30 years, right? Like, because that's the length of a mortgage, right? So if you're going to go buy a house, <laughs> you might, the, <laughs> you might want to think about, Oh, how likely is it to flood here in the next 30 years? And that is, you know, yeah, looking at sort of, like the one in, you know, a certain probability event. And so just, con- yeah, communicating that kind of uncertainty, but understanding that just because it is a 100-year event doesn't mean it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's still, it's actually pretty likely to happen over the course of 30 years, so.
0: Yeah, nice. That does sound important to communicate because that's, you know, directly impacting us most probably within our lifetimes, so... Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure having you on.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you.
0: I'd just like to say thank you so much to Liv Herdman for coming on today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I think that's incredibly important to think about. You've got so much of this infrastructure and so much of this aesthetic of coastal environments that we see from our modern societies. We have LA, which is on the coast. We have New York City, which is on the coast. You've got Venice, you've got tons of different coastal cities all especially on the Eastern seaboard and in America in general. So many trade-based water adjacent cities now which are very common if you want trade, which is one of the most dangerous spots to have infrastructure. So definitely consider when you're building these cities, they're going to happen on coastlines if you want intercontinental trade, but if you're putting them there, there are going to be consequences for that region and maybe architectural differences to defend themselves. So all stuff to consider as you're building your new planet and where your different societies are going to be stationed. It's a pros and cons list, the whole concept of a coastal city. Just consider that when you're building them. They're extremely important and common, but that doesn't mean they're not without their troubles. Just consider those as you're building your societies. If you have any pressing questions or want me to take a look at what you're building, reach out. Shoot me an email at fromthevoidup at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fromthevoidup. I'll be posting some updates and some extra visuals there, so feel free to check them out. Feel free to ask me anything. Even if I can't make a whole episode out of it, I am here to help you research. Or hey, if it's a big enough question, I'll add it to the list. Thanks so much for listening to From the Void Up, subscribe to this podcast with whatever streaming site you use, and leave a review if you liked it, or if you didn't, honestly. Special thanks to Jerry Reticliano for the theme music and Dylan Desmaris for the art. I've been your host, Tyler Hadar, and in the meanwhile, keep on building. I'll see you all next week.